Hey folks, and welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films by film lovers for film lovers. Each week we pick a movie, we talk about it, we review it, we discuss some of the ideas and themes it throws up. We're currently in our third season, and so we are going director by director, month by month, picking a director and going through their catalogue and looking at the movies they've made throughout their careers. This week is the first week in our Ben Weekly season, so for the next four weeks we'll be looking at Ben Weekly's work. But before that, we always kick off our show with what else we've been watching, the other things we've been enjoying in the last week. So what about you, Sam? Aside from our movie of the week, what else have you been watching, listening to, reading that you want to recommend? Or not recommend, your call. Right, um, well, not a lot in the way of films, but I have been watching a bit of TV, um... And a fairly new program found we found on iPlayer this week. It's called Million Pound Menu. And what I thought was going to be one of those those awful Channel 4, let's see how the other half live um, and watch how their uh, chef spend £40,000 on a gram of caviar, whatever. Um, this is not that. This is kind of The Apprentice-like, but it's The Apprentice with people who are actually competent. It, one of the things I really can't stand about The Apprentice is they're just all so hopeless, and they love it, love themselves, and they think they're brilliant, and they're not brilliant. And this is sort of... Um, looking for investment in sort of up-and-coming restaurant businesses and some of them been successful street food vendors and some of them work in uh, current restaurants and it's just really refreshing to have something where the people are actually good at what they do so i've been enjoying that excellent excellent well, I've been uh, dipping once again into into my 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 collection here of old terrible movies. Though this week's turned out not that terrible. Uh, this week I've managed to watch the 1989 horror, gore horror, supernatural horror Italian gallo film, The Church, um, from uh, Dario Argento, who's sort of the master of the genre, but directed by I think I pronounce this Michelle Soyovi. Um, it is the tale of a a cathedral that's been built on the sides of a mass pilgrim murder grave. Um, and they awaken the demon within and have to deal with it as it takes its hold on the people trapped inside the church. It is gory and horrific and has... The clearest nudge I can say to its more mainstream rivals is something like Rosemary's Baby, where the actual insanity of the movie kind of doesn't happen for the first hour. And you just have this feeling of creeping dread among the Gothic cathedral as people sort of circle around what is clearly a, a cursed, cursed site. But once it goes crazy, it goes utterly insane crazy with orgies and demons and fish creatures and blood and gore and evil children and there being a special spot in which you can touch the chapel in which it will collapse in on itself um so it is it is madness but it was a very enjoyable bit of madness um in that kind of schlocky horror that isn't sam's thing we touched on zombie two a couple of years ago on the show which Sam was not a fan yeah. of. Um, it's in. It's not quite as insane as that, but it is in that kind same kind of genre. Um, so for me, a good time, but I appreciate it. it's not for everybody. As Rob mentioned earlier, we are embarking on a new director this week. Um, our 
directorial mini-season kicks off with the first film by the British director Ben Wheatley, Down Terrace. Big Bill! Oh, well, can't keep a good man down, can they? Just tell me what's going on in there! This is disappointing. <laughs> Tough four months for you boys, I'd imagine. No, I just thought I'd come and put your mind at rest and uh, everything's running smoothly. Down Terrace from 2009 is a gangster film by the very young... Um, 36 at the time of filming Ben Wheatley it stars Robin Hill and Robert Hill as the father and son at its core also has support from Julia Dakin and from many other character actors who will be familiar from their time on the British screen Um. There is not a lot I can say about this in terms of... There's a very simple story at its heart. Um, The father and son have just escaped a prison term and um, this is in spite of being informed on, they feel. And the movie takes upon itself to explain or to follow their attempts to find out who this informant was. I think it's the best way of describing it. Rob, what were your thoughts? I really enjoyed this film, but I feel this is coming with a bit of caveat, because a while back we covered movies like um, Amores Perez and 21 Grams, and I did go on a bit of rant at the time about being tired of watching movies about bad people do bad things, and how that didn't present anything interesting to me, and I kind of went off on those movies a little bit. And I can see the hypocrisy in me saying I enjoyed this film, because this film is very much a British version of that. These are horrible people doing horrible, horrible things. Mm. But it had a it had a streak of black comedy to it that for me lifted it up. And despite the sort of the, the carnage that was unfolding on screen, that the the sort of the last back the back third of the movie certainly dissolves into carnage in a very British gangstery kind of way. It's still the the humour in it and and the bleakness, the kind of blackness of that comedy lifted it for me. It's a you know it's a very British gangster film, and that can sound like an insult given we have been bombarded with snatch knockoffs and lock stock knockoffs for years, you know Essex Boys, all these kind of things. And I don't see those as British in that kind of way. This is a very small kind of ad hoc kind of flying by the seat of your pants kind of gangster movie they aren't they are gangsters in the worst possible way and they live a quiet middle class life and you know have drum circles and sing folk music with their friends and make cups of tea it's a very that kind of british um but yeah for me the humor lifted it you know you've got the um the wannabe hitman who brings his kid to jobs because he can't get a babysitter um, the, the the bleakness in which they that they dispatch the mother of of said hitman down the line, um, and there's a, a a scene for me that got very uncomfortable and got very funny in which uh, he can't find his letters and he's screaming at everyone. And then there's a, a kind of a, a moment of beating. He goes, "Oh, oh, here they are," and it was the the, the, the touches of black comedy for me lifted up to a film that is a hard watch, but I certainly enjoyed it. What about you, Sam? 
I wasn't sure. I mean, it, it's, it's strange, actually, because um, take a film like 21 Grams, and I was more on board with that than you were, and then um, come this film, which is another film about particularly unpleasant people, as you said, um, I wasn't really sure about this, and I don't know whether it's sort of me failing to get out of my Baz Luhrmann zone the past month, but <laughs> it, it is a change, guys. It, it, it is a it's a shift from Baz Luhrmann yeah, to this, certainly. Yeah. It just just felt a bit, and maybe, maybe this is maybe something I need to get into, um, and something that we'll we'll see more in um, later films, but. I just found it very bleak, and mm-hmm. it, it just ev- everyone's so terrible to each other. And I did, I, I, I did really enjoy the, like you said, some of the the moments of comedy with Carl's cards and with Pringle bring his son to work and. The, the way that whatever had just happened, somebody would say, oh, do you want a cup of tea? Mm. And the way that it, evidently the wife was an important figure in the household, but there were times when she was sort of relegated to making cups of tea. And there was sort of that battle between the patriarchy and the understanding that she was an important figure in this gangster mm. movie. So it was, there were some interesting things going on in this film. And I suppose I would want to talk about them more because I, I just can't face talking about how bleak this was. It, it, it was, I, I, I will say that I agree. It, it's a, a bleak film. Like everybody, everybody, even the sort of, a character in his girlfriend who you feel maybe like an innocent caught up in the in the maelstrom of, of their lives turns out to be equally unpleasant and equally conniving. Um, and one thing that really struck me watching it was is the idea the idea of masculinity and the idea of masculinity in the, in the in the face of this kind of family unit and the two main guys who weirdly played by a real father and son and that's mm. going to be a weird a weird table to sit around. But they both have very different elements of masculinity to them, and the more sort of toxic and destructive elements of those um, masculinities kind of came to the forefront. You've got the father who's very, you know, patriarchal. He's very, you know, dismissive of his son, and there's an element I think of jealousy, and his son maybe, you know, did it normally to be usurped by his son. The kind of um, the weird sort of um, Oedipal effect, a little bit of no wishing, to, not wishing, not wishing to be killed by your son. Um, and that idea of being risen up against by his son. And he feels like a very paranoid character, despite what he kind of proclaims to be this laid-back hippie who got sucked into the drug trade. He's a very paranoid, and he, he reacts very verbally violently to a lot of things. And then you've got the son, who's this sort of stunted man-child, um, who clearly you know, is a man in his late 20s, early 30s, but he feels like he's a teenage boy acting out a lot of the time. Um, and then he's grabbing that life and that, and that household that's some effects. But you feel like he hasn't been allowed to grow or move on. His, his father's sort of keeping him down, has, has left him this kind of frustrated ball of rage at everything, um, at the world, at his family, at his, you know, he, 
he's the one who kicks off the cycle of violence that takes down this whole movie. Um, and he seemed to do it because because Garvey suggested that uh, his mother of his seemed to be wife actually slept someone else and it could have been could not be his child and it isn't like a i think you're the uh, snitch it's more like you've opened my eyes to reality i can't face and so to turn that i will just kill you and these sort of not competing but these complementary and contradictory elements of the toxic masculinity in the characters really sort of quite interesting to me Mm. it was interesting that you, you'd think, I mean, I suppose I'm trying, trying to get it, is that they were, they were complicated characters and there were elements of the father where there's that straightforward toxic masculinity that you want to react against and you want to... I mean, I'm thinking of when um, Valda says, it says she says to him, you're bullying Carl. And mm. you think, that's totally right. That's exactly what he's doing. And... He is entirely in the wrong. And then there are other times when you look at Carl and you think, well, no, he's the one who's in the wrong. This yep. is terrible. I mean, he has, whether it's his fault or not, he he has grown up into a man who is in some ways just as bad as his father. And that was one of the interesting things about this film, that... They they weren't black and white. It sounds really strange to say when they're they're all murdering asses, but they they're not black and white characters. There's there are shades of grey in this, and that scene, as you said, mo- most most prominently seen in in that interface between different types of masculinity in the family. Mm. Well, it's this sort of weird, in my mind, sort of this reversion of a classic Hollywood trope. There's, a, I think it's called Saving the Cat, um, where if you want to show someone's a good person, really, you see, you show them doing something small but nice early on. So even if they are an anti-hero, even if they are um, someone who, who's going to be painted in shades of grey, you show them doing something nice early on. Um, saving a Cat is, is the sort of the tropey example. And this mm. film kind of does that but also kind of sort of pushes against that because we don't have them doing nice things we just have them doing things so the first hour of the movie is just them sitting around talking and having a lot of alka and you know having a few drinks and chatting and making jokes with their friends and catching up and scene setting in many ways but that scene setting takes over half the movie and it's a case of like it isn't like it's trying to go well here's a good thing and a bad thing they're doing but it's that true sense of humanising this family by making them be humans, the terrible humans, terrible, horrible humans, but still human um, in a way that many sort mm. of bigger budget films kind of, your bad guys become bad. They become very, very bad. They become evilly bad. And they become this kind of almost Hitler-like figure in which you can't, there isn't a, there isn't a shade of grey. They're just evil. They're just a bad person. And even if you want to throw in the last minute, oh, I did it with my daughter, you know, even that kind of thing. It's like, it still feels like a, a scales being weighed up for some characters. Where they, you know, here's some bad things, and we'll see pop, pop a couple of good things on here. And it feels like this, this the binary balance of these bad guys. Whereas this, it isn't that. They, they, they are horrible people, but they are spread out. You know, I mean, let's see, talking about spoilers, right at the end, in, in which um, the son kills the father, um, he clearly doesn't really want to do it, and he's clearly heartbroken from it. Um, and you see this real pain and anguish in his eyes when he does it, but he still does it. 
Hmm. Um, and then yeah. his his wife to be comes home, and it's almost like part of the course again. And it's this weird kind of swinging between rage and impotency and um, mundanity, and also this kind of real grief. But it's it's, 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 it's humanization is the way I give it. To humanize his characters, but in a way that is contrary to the way that Hollywood often does it. Yeah, I think actually that's something that you get in the very title of the film mm. that this is this is not necessarily a film about um a situation or about characters in that situation even though that's what gets played out this is a film about a very ordinary place this is rooted in a terrace this is not um it's not sort of gangsters living in um, high-end apartments or houses with showing off bling and getting wealthy from the underhand things they do. This is this is very much rooted in the terraced houses of a maybe a suburban area or an, a definitely urban area. So this is what Ben Wheatley has done is very definitely located that in this house and you have that when Johnny and Maggie are talking after Johnny comes to visit and I, I remember making a note at this point saying oh god what on earth is, is Maggie going to do because it became very clear that she was the one who was going to take action when mm. she was talking to Johnny but it, it was interesting when Johnny said to Maggie this this is a nice house. Lots of lovely memories in this house, or worse to that effect. And you think, well, that's what this film is about. This film is about the importance of the house, and of, I suppose, the mundanity of family life. Well, I think that, that, that that's an you pick up your theme there. There's this interesting sort of thread through the movie of family and what that means and what that means to different people. And you have these weird kind of almost like a Venn diagram of family. Um, and it can sound a little bit like a, a Fast and Furious episode talking about family a lot, but there are these rings of family. So obviously there's there's mother and father and the son who are one unit, um, and then the son, his girlfriend, and their unborn child, and, and that's sort of a, a second unit. And then you've got this kind of wider sort of circle of, of Garvey and Pringle and um, and that kind of Eric, and then that kind of slightly larger circle. And everybody thinks they're the family. If you see what I'm saying. Mm. So Garvey, Eric and Pringle, they couldn't imagine a world in which the family turned on them because their family, Eric's brother, brother, you know, Garvey's the son of of of, um, of, of Bill's best friend. Um, and it's there's this idea that, that, that this family and then you kind of, as it goes on, as you say, that you kind of you start to see what really family is. And so the mother kind of closes that circle down. That Maggie, you know, turns up to Bill and Carl and says, you know, we look after that three. And so she'll kill Eric. And they'll kill Garvey and they'll kill Pringle. But there's this also a scene in which which Maggie goes to Bill and says, you know, you know what I miss with it's just you and me. Hmm. And given that they've only got one son, that's clearly talking about the preferred when when Carl wasn't around. And so there's, there's another little unit. And obviously sort of the, 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 the the final act sort of turn is that actually it's the new family you know Varda and Carl and their child who are the ones who step up and protect that family by killing uh, Carl's parents and all their friends so it's it, 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 it sort of these circles of family and that kind of this interplay between these sort of the back and forth between these different families 
different units within this one household. And it does mean, you know, he's a, Ben Wheatley is a TV director prior to this. And it does show in this kind of one location with a couple of exterior shots. But I think that works to say the claustrophobia, the kind of, the kind of, paranoia that's built among these families everyone thinking well carl's you know bill clearly thinks carl's carl's my son he's in my family without realizing that by trying to drive a wedge between him and him and, him and vada he somehow formed this new family unit his treatment of carl who he thinks he can treat how he likes because carl's his family actually pushes carl off to go and start a new family yeah and that was something that i mean i that that was, I suppose, the most surprising thing about me about it. For me. I didn't pick up on the fact that Eric was Bill's brother-in-law. Eric was Maggie's brother until she said it. Mm. I don't know whether it might have been subtly hinted at, but that came as a real surprise to me that she said at the moment that she killed Eric, "I didn't want to have to do this to you. You're my brother," and that was. That was a real surprise for me that and that what we have here is a realization for I mean not really a realization for Eric because he's dying, but a realization for us that what this film is about, like you said, is the surpassing of the family, the formation of new family units, and Eric as you said Eric thought he was part of the family, and Maggie makes it clear fatally that he's definitely not mm-hmm. and then like you said Bill thinks he's part of the family and Carl makes it clear that he's not at the end I suppose that's that's why the last scene is so powerful when nothing really happens when Father comes in and she sort of puts her arm around Carl and they look at his body and it it's like she I mean she, she doesn't really react to she she knew what she was going to she knew what she was going to walk in on she knew what to expect mm-hmm. with Bill there and it it is just she's taken it in a stride and this is normal to her and it's like the the last thing the film is saying this is the new normality mm-hmm. But I think the film, like the film, it's strange. The film ends very differently than it starts. The film starts almost kind of very low key and ends quite violent, but it builds to it. I mean, there are shocking moments of violence. You know, the first death of Garvey, uh, Carl's attempted stabbing in in the underpass. There are moments of violence in this certainly, but it feels like it takes you on that journey where you start in like a, a reserved normality, and you end up in this horrible place. But you don't feel like it suddenly jumped on you. And the way we discussed previously with other movies like Australia, where there are sudden jumps in tone that can distract you, this to me didn't have that. It just had this, you know, slow degradation, this slow descent into madness and violence and and, and death. But it felt slow and measured. You know, it felt like the um, like you didn't you weren't knocked out of the nerve at any point. Hmm. Yeah. I, I can't believe it's going to be me that, who brings this up first, but something that really stuck out to me from the very beginning of this film is is the colour the, and the, the visual tone of this film because it feels very much like a film that's set around 1980. Mm. And actually, I suppose 
that's really interesting when you think about um, when Carl's looking through the photos and he's harking back to this time at the end of the 70s and you think well that's what it feels like this film is like when I mean we have very clearly at the beginning it's signposted that this is filmed in 2008 with the ready report and the war in Iraq five years in but actually you have Wheatley showing things to us that could very easily be from the late 70s early 80s i thought it was interesting just picking up there that, that, that the inclusion of that um the news report on the iraq war and it just felt like that, that there's a there's a, a line it's not a thick line but a line to be drawn there between this kind of misguided invasion of of, of iraq and the story we're telling here, this idea of, you know, swaggering masculinity kind of ending with everybody dead and you know, this invasion um, that takes place. Did, I mean, did you pick up any of that? Yeah, I suppose I hadn't, hadn't until you mentioned it there, but there's, there was something very obvious about that that is sort of almost out of place, but not quite about this Um overt politicising of that invasion right at the beginning and it, it it's very easy to go through this film and forget about that and think well this is just a not not petty family squabble but this is a very sort of civil war in the sense of being located within a, a service within a society mm. and actually I hadn't thought about that this is this is a film about war and it's a film about we've been talking about family a lot here and, and you said the Venn diagrams of family and this is a film about Venn diagrams of uh, expanding universes of, of other things as well as family and conflict is one of those and when people realise that actually this is a much bigger conflict than they first thought It's that kind of idea of spiralling like a single act of violence um, and born out of frustration and revenge and passion, can spiral into into what appears to be this absolute you know, pile of gore and bodies. And that's that the same kind of idea that you know the Iraq War and the invasion that, that sort of came after nine eleven was born out of this need for revenge and this need for some sort of recompense and and somewhere to place the anger of the world. But taken to a lot of conclusions it's ended up with thousands dead and and a, a region in turmoil still and i think there is there is a an argument to be made there a, a sort of a, a line to be drawn between those two things it's interesting because i hadn't thought i suppose it's it's the sort of almost sepia tone at the beginning of this film the way that it feels quite that it feels self-consciously dated and I hadn't really thought about this it's a very modern comment on the state of the world mm. and that's something that I think we probably need to keep in mind as we proceed through Ben Wheatley's work I, I agree I, think, uh, I mean having seen a couple of the other films that we were watching prior there is an element of uh, the corrupting influence of violence and I think that's a theme we'll come mm. back to as we as we go forward but Sam, do you have some recommendations for us? Do you have anything else to uh, to point us towards that maybe you enjoyed more rather than you enjoyed Down Terrace? Yes, well, you mentioned towards the end there that Wheatley up until this point has been largely uh, a TV director and it, and that's noticeable in, in the way that he shoots some of his work. Um, and I wanted to... Um, 
highlight. I've got three recommendations this week. I just want to briefly touch on three standout uh, British comedy slash comedy dramas of the past few years because I think too often people, certainly when talking about film, are sort of fairly snooty about TV and certainly in the past decade there have been amazing works in 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 tv that certainly on a par with with lots of cinematic work um so the three recommendations i want to bring up are well the first one is um takes uh what's his name robin hill that's it carl as a link um and I suppose there, there are lots of other actors from British TV. You've got uh, David Charles as Eric, who's from The Inbetweeners. Tony Way, Garvey has been in everything. I mean, pick something. Sherlock, Inside Number 9, Not Going Out. I mean, absolutely everything in British TV. Um, but I want to focus on Robin Hill because he was in a brilliant comedy called W1A. And it lampoons brilliantly the um, workings or not workings of the BBC from within the BBC. Um, it's very enjoyable. Um, I won't say too much more about it, but if you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. And they're fairly short episodes, so it's it's not a big commitment. Um, and actually, my, my last two were uh, short episodes as well. It, there's... The comedy um, started in 2011, so started a couple of years after um, Down Terrace. And there's a link here with Lori Rose, who's the DP on Down Terrace. And she was cinematographer on um, a series of a comedy that I very much enjoyed, Friday Night Dinner. And she was also cinematographer on... Um, nearly a series of The Job Lot, which is a comedy set in a job centre. So there are two, I suppose three there, W1A, Friday Night Dinner and The Job Lot are all about various um, different units. Some of them involve family members and some of them don't. But they're three interesting um, examples of the successes of British comedy from the past few years. I just mentioned before you're on there that Lawyer Rose is a man, not a woman. Brilliant. Well done, there Sam. But we want. So I, I've got two recommendations, one kind of thematic and one kind of um, actly based. So my first actor is what you mentioned earlier. You mentioned Tony Ray, um, who's been in everything. And he's in a film that came out a couple of years ago that I very much enjoyed and it's getting some love now, it's getting some recognition now, but I still want to sort of champion it a little bit. And that's the film Edge of Tomorrow, or Live, Die, Repeat, depending on where you put it. Um, it's a Tom Cruise action movie in many ways, um, but it is somewhat more cerebral, somewhat more intelligent than a standard uh, action movie about a man who kind of, every time he dies, comes back and lives again, has to fight a war against some invading aliens. If you haven't seen it, it is one of the best action movies in the last few years. Um, if you have seen it, you know what I'm talking about. So that's my first recommendation. My second recommendation is, um, it's kind of based on something we didn't talk about much, which is the idea of this British film genre called the kitchen sink drama. 
um, that is a big part of British ATV and movies. The idea of, of the working class or the low middle class and the day-to-day minutiae of their lives being interesting. And it's a very British genre, and it's been going for many, many years. Um, and it's, the film I recommend is a film called Saturday Night, Sunday Morning. And it's probably the most exemplar of the genre. It's a 1960 film, I believe it is. And it's like voted one of the best British films of all time. And it's just the tale of a, of a, of a local guy who's works in, I think it's a shipyard um, or a steel mill, and kind of his Saturday night to Sunday morning, and the sort of the, the day-to-day lives of these people who sort of live in in the working classes. And it's something that we still do today in Ken Loach, Ken Loach films. Um, yeah, we see it in the soaps we discussed last week. We see this kind of thread of, of the working class lives. It's a very British endeavour, a very British interest. So Saturday Night, Sunday Morning is, is, is just a, it's a brilliant film in that genre. It's not for everybody. It obviously isn't as action-packed as uh, even this film is. But it has something to say about Britain in that time. It's very, very British in that kind of way, in a way that... When everyone says it's British, we often think of top hats and the Queen, and it's not that kind of British. It's more of the on-the-streets Britain, and, and what Britain is day-to-day for a lot of people that often isn't covered by the more mainstream, the more Hollywood, more BBC productions. So, those are my two. Brilliant. We'll be back next week, guys, with the next film in our Ben Wheatley month, Kill List. Now, I do want to issue a warning, guys. Kill List is a... It's in the same vein as Down Terrace, but it is one of the most disturbing films that I've seen in my life. It is not for the faint of heart, so please go into it watching that, expecting that. It is one that uh, it comes with a content warning, which isn't something I do often on the show, but I felt having seen Kills before I should offer that to people who watch one at home. Can I not watch it? No, no, that's, that's a deal. <laughs> you may want to look like Lone Ranger. This, okay. this is a range. Until then, guys, you can find both of us online at Richie Podcast. You find just me at life underscore. You can find just me at Rob Kaiju. And we'll see you back here next week.